Good morning, TLC. Fun fact, the footage in that video is the footage of uh, Elah Valley, where David and Goliath will face off. So we'll get there later. Anyways, hey, uh, I last December, January, around this time last year, uh, I Olivia and I had our, our first in November, so he's probably a couple months old, and uh, he had uh, something happen where any parent of a newborn will tell you this is like the last thing you want to happen, okay? He got his days and nights confused. <sighs> and, uh, you know, I can't blame the kid because in his first like three months of life, he saw like three hours of sunshine, okay? Like, if you guys don't remember, last December, January, like dreadfully dreary, okay? And uh, so nighttime sleep, not going so well. And uh, we put him down to go to, you know, go to sleep or whatever. It was probably like 3 or 4 a.m., one night in particular stands out. And uh, I heard, you know, we hear, we hear him cry. And uh, I think, you know, it was my turn uh, to go in there and act like I knew what I was doing. And uh, so, so I go in there, he's crying, you know. But I get up and I'm just like, I'm so calm, cool, and collected, you know. I go in there and I just like gently grab our little son. I'm just like cuddling him and soothing him and, you know, kissing him on the forehead like, it's okay, bud, you know. Soothe him. He goes, he goes back to sleep. I lay him back down in the crib. I walk out very, very quietly. And as I'm walking to my bed, I'm just like, <laughs> great, awesome, loving dad. Somebody give me a button or a badge or something with my face on it like this, you know, or something. <laughs> and uh, then I fell asleep. And uh, it could have been five minutes. It could have been 50. I could not tell you. But next thing I know, I hear him crying. And it was like great, loving, awesome dad had like exited my body while I was sleeping. And, and what woke up was like not that, okay? So one thing you guys have to know, I'm an eight on the, on the Enneagram, all right? I experience like anger and frustration like in my body. And there are times when like I'm so angry and frustrated, like I just like, it's in my body. I just have to like flail around a little bit, you know? I'm not a danger to anyone, just myself. And my son wakes up and I'm like, I'm there, you know? So he wakes up and I just start like, slapping like blankets and I'm like throwing pillows you know and my wife is like are you good and I'm like yeah I'm fine I'm just gonna go like I'm just gonna get our son and she's like no you're not and I'm like <laughs> and I'm like yes I am you know I think I convinced her to let me just go grab him and then hand her smartly hand him to her and let her like do you know the mom thing and, and take care of him and all that stuff right and I remember going to bed and laying my head on the pillow thinking to myself like how is it possible that the person who was like so selflessly like cuddling and, you know, soothing this baby boy, putting him down, was the same person who like minutes later was selfishly having a tantrum of his own, throwing blankets and pillows in his bedroom because his newborn son wouldn't go to sleep when he wanted him to. Like newsflash, dude, you had a baby. That's what babies do, you know? We find ourselves asking this kind of question a lot. Like in silly ways, I think, we find ourselves asking questions like, how could the people who made this movie, Spy Kids? So good, right? Oh my gosh, the car, the wheels turn sideways, and Carmen and Junie and Floop and the Thumbman and the little microwave that pops out a Big Mac meal like that, you know? Oh my gosh, this movie is so good, okay? If you haven't been sitting at home for the last week in the freezing cold and snow and watch Spy Kids, go home, do yourself a favor, watch some Spy Kids, okay? How could the people who made this movie, though, be the same people who made this movie? 
I'm telling you, Spy Kids 2, steep decline, okay, from Spy Kids 1. And then the same people that made this movie, Spy Kids 3, 3D. This movie is terrible, all right? We have some Spy Kids 3 sympathizers in the room. I know it's all the college students. And here's the thing, you college students, you were like, hey, I'm going to the movies. It's like one of my first movies because I'm like six years old and I'm gonna go see Spy Kids. So you have fond memory of it, okay? But trust me, this movie is terrible. Look it up, Rotten Tomatoes, Spy Kids, certain score, Spy Kids 2, cut in half. Spy Kids 3, cut that in half, all right? They get cut in half the more they make them, okay? We ask ourselves this question in a silly ways, but also in more serious, significant ways. Like, how could the person who was a deeply Christian pastor, who led a deeply Christian civil rights movement that changed an entire nation that we rightfully celebrated this past week, be the same person who, as it's well documented, whose marriage was marked by infidelity? There's a moment in the life of this guy named David in the Bible. And David and his army of 600 people are in pursuit of some enemies who have taken some of his own people and they're holding them captive. And the army of 600 people, they get to a valley called Besor and it says that 200 of them were unable to continue. So the rest of David's army, they keep going. They reach their enemies. They overtake them. And the men who had continued on had zero intentions of sharing any of the spoils from the enemies that they had overtaken. I don't blame them. I wouldn't either. But David had different intentions. David warmly and kindly approached them and asked them how they were and declared that everyone would receive an equal share of the spoils, regardless of if you had gone or if you had stayed. It was a small but significant moment of incredible warmth and kindness and generosity from David. There's another moment in the life of this guy named David in the Bible. A few chapters later, actually, David had a wife uh, that he was given a woman by the name of Michal. And Michal was the daughter of the first king of Israel, a guy by the name of Saul. And as a result of David and Saul's conflict, Michal had been taken from David, sent off, given away to another man, another husband, and was no longer his wife. And as a result of the conflict, David's victory seems imminent over Saul and, and his sympathizers. And David decides he's going to declare that be, as part of his victory, he wants Michal taken from her home, taken from her husband, and brought back to him for the pure political ramifications of the whole thing. A move with pure political intentions. And so Michal is taken from her home, taken from her husband. We're not given any words uh, to her about how she felt about the whole thing. And her husband, Paltiel, we're not given any words from him either, but his tears are recorded. It says that as she was being taken, he followed her, weeping all the way until he was told to return home, never to see her again. And David, typically never one to shy away from his thoughts or emotions. He is the great poet after all. In this moment, is silent. A small but significant moment of cold callousness from David. And we're left wondering, how could the person who demonstrated such warmth and kindness and generosity to a group of soldiers unable to fulfill their duties be the same person who put his political power and advantage over and above the people involved in his scheme, his coldness and callousness? 
This morning, we kick off an 11-week series, a study in the life of David, where we're going to zoom in on some of these different moments in the life of this famous Old Testament king. And what we will soon find out, if we haven't already, is that David's story wasn't a perfect one, full of ups and downs, successes and failures, victories and valleys. Yet his intimate relationship with his creator captured the hearts and the minds of the biblical authors and the God to whom all the scriptures point. Now to understand why that is, I think we have to sort of rewind the clocks a little bit and get our bearings in the biblical story and David's place in it, which is what I hope to do this morning. But before we do that, let me just say this. Over the next 11 weeks, we will see David in all kinds of different ways. We will see David brave. We will see David angry. We will see David fighting. We will see him retreating into cowardice. We will see David dancing. We'll see David weeping. We'll see David praying, David sinning, David uh, preserving life, David taking it, David cold and callous, David warm and generous. But we will miss the point entirely if we fail to see the God behind it all refusing to give up on him or his people. You know, David is often called a man after God's own heart. And he's referred to this way in the Bible. It's an appropriate title, one that he will live up to at times. We'll get to see some of those times. But I think that when we look at the life of David as a whole, which we're going to do over the next 11 weeks, another thing that we see in David is actually a God after man and woman's own heart. And it is my hope and my prayer that over these next 11 weeks, that that whether you find yourself in a victory or a valley or somewhere in between, that we would see, that we would hear, and we would experience through David, God's never stopping, never giving up, never failing love, pursuing us all the way. You know, one of my favorite authors, Eugene Peterson, he said this about David, that there is nothing absolutely nothing that God can't and doesn't use to work his salvation and holiness into our lives. If we're going to get the most out of the Jesus story, we'll want first to soak our imaginations in the David story. So with that in mind, let's jump in. So the life of David is captured in the, first, uh, first, in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. So before we get to 1 and 2 Samuel, there's some stuff in the Bible that happens before that. So let's do a quick 30,000-foot view catch-up of the biblical story of the Israelite people. All right, so the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, they introduce God, who has a name, Yahweh. And Yahweh is committed to this group of people, a family, really, that become a tribe, or a set of tribes that all stem from this guy named Abraham. And Yahweh, God, makes a covenant and promises with Abraham. And then he keeps making covenants and promises with Abraham and his family and his people that are becoming this set of tribes, right? God rescues them out of slavery, uh, out of Egypt. And then God continues making covenants and promises. He leads them into a land of promise in the book of Joshua. And then after that, he instills his rule and reign through a series of priests or judges in a book called, can you guess the name of the book? Judges, that's right, super creative name, I know, right? Okay, so up until this point, up until this point, this tribe, this set of tribes of people have operated as a tribal theocracy, which if you're in seventh grade social studies right now, you know that a theocracy is a system of ruling where a priest or a judge rules on behalf of God, right? That's what the Israelite people have been up until the moment and this point that we're going to read this morning. And David, 
this little shepherd boy from Bethlehem will soon be swept up into this massive shift as from a tribal theocracy to a united monarchy. Now, three people really help make this shift possible, from a biblical perspective at least. Samuel, Saul, and David. The next 10 weeks, we're going to be zeroed in on King David, right? With a little bit of Saul, like sprinkled in there, okay? Because he's kind of part of the story. But this morning, we're not going to be looking at Saul or David necessarily. This morning, we're going to kind of zero in on the moment that makes King David possible, the moment that sort of paves the way for King David. And it's a moment that involves the first guy I mentioned, Samuel. So if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 8. And as you do that, just a a quick little uh, background on Samuel. So Samuel was the last judge of the people of Israel. He was the son of a guy named Elkanah and uh, the son of a woman named Hannah. And Hannah was barren. She cried out to God, asking for a child. God responded and gave her a son. And as a result of that son, Hannah prayed this prayer and uh, a song kind of that uh, really shapes some of the themes of First and Second Samuel as a whole, kind of uh, uh, paves the way for the life of David. And uh, you guys... Uh, because we weren't able to gather, maybe got the chance to kind of read that prayer in 1 Samuel 2 and do some reflecting on that. Uh, and so Samuel is the daughter of Elkanah and Hannah. And here's what you need to know about Samuel. Samuel was a good judge. He was a, a good and faithful judge. He steered the Israelites into covenant faithfulness with God and God's favor was on him. In fact, in 1 Samuel 7, the chapter before what we're going to read this morning, Samuel calls out to God and says, God, please protect us from uh, the the Israelites' arch enemies at the time, the Philistines, and God responds to it. It says that, the text says that the Lord thundered with a mighty sound and threw the Philistines into confusion. I don't know what that means, but it, it means that the Israelites were able to strike them down and God protected them and God responded to Samuel. That's in 1 Samuel 7. The next thing that we have is years later in 1 Samuel 8, all the way at the end of Samuel's life, His deadbeat, worthless sons are doing a horrible job replacing him as a set of judges. And the elders of the tribes of Israel come to Samuel and they have a request. That's where we're hopping in this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 4 says this. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and they came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, you are old and your sons do not follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you. It is not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. As they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as his rights. You ever have something, maybe when you were growing up, or, or maybe it was like last week, I don't know, uh, but something that you're just like obsessed with getting, like you just, you, you couldn't think about anything else. Like you, just, you needed that pair of shoes, or you needed that card, or you needed that video game, or like, I don't know what it is, but you do, okay? That thing that you were just like, until I have this, like I can't really live, you know? Uh, I want you to share, share with your neighbor what that thing was. Again, may have been when you were a kid, or if you're like me, you kind of have an obsessive personality, may have been last week, okay? I want you to share with your neighbor that one thing that you're just like, I gotta have this. I kept thinking about it, I kept talking about it until I finally had it. All right, all right, all right. So when I was in sixth grade, I was like, I was just obsessed. I was obsessed with the idea of getting a phone. 
Like I just, I needed a phone, you know, and bless my parents. I was very, I, I would just get fixated on stuff, you know, and just, I would not give it up. And uh, so I just asked for a phone over and not just any phone. I'm talking that Motorola Razor. You know what I'm saying? I know. <laughs> I remember I got one. Now, hold on. Let me just say in the room, if you're like a sixth grader or an eighth grader, whatever, please do not go home and being like, mom, Pastor Austin said he got a phone when he was in sixth grade. Listen, different times, okay? A Motorola Razor. People were freaking out because there was a tiny screen like this big that would just say stuff on it. Like you got a text message or whatever, okay? That is totally different than an iPhone today and what an iPhone can do, okay? So please don't do that. Anyways, uh, got a Motorola Razor. I was so excited. I had just talked about it, talked about it nonstop, and I finally got it, right? We just wrapped up Christmas season. How many of you guys during the holiday season watched A Christmas Story? This is wild, guys. I don't see a lot of hands. I haven't seen a lot of hands all morning, and I'm just wondering if this movie's gonna like die a slow, painful death. You guys have watched it. Well, li li listen, if you watched it, didn't watch it, doesn't matter. I guarantee you know what little Ralphie wants. What does little Ralphie want? Red Rider BB gun, right? He wants it, he wants it, he keeps talking about it, he keeps talking about it, he keeps talking about it, and his parents and everybody else keep giving him a warning. What's the warning? You'll shoot your eye out. Side note, we were at our staff Christmas party, and in a fishbowl thing, I put, uh, we were instructed, and I put a Christmas reference, and I put Fragili. When I say Fragili, what do you say? Must be Italian. Thank you. And the only reason that Deanna knows that is because she was there. And I'm like, I don't understand why people don't get this reference. It's a Christmas story reference. Anyway, it doesn't matter, okay? He wants a Red Rider BB gun. He keeps getting the warning. You'll shoot your eye out. This is kind of what's happening here. The Israelites have been over and over again. We want a king. We want a king. We want a king. They won't shut up about it. They keep asking God for it. And in this moment here, God sort of gives his warning to the Israelite people. It's his version of like, you'll shoot your eye out here. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 10, it says this. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifty, and others to plow his grounds and reap his harvest, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks. And then when you have nothing left to give, you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. Now, before we go criminalizing the Israelite people and saying to ourselves, like, how could the Israelite people do this? Like, God warned them, like, how could they do this? I think that we should first consider the ways that we too, at times, out of our desire to look like the people around us or to feel safe and secure or comfortable, have chosen the rule and reign of the kings of this world over the rule and reign of Christ. And God's warning then, I think, is the same as it is today. 
Like, I don't know about you, I, you know, I had to just sit on this message for a week because of the snow day. And one of the worst things about preaching a message is you have to preach it to yourself. And two weeks I had to listen to this message and this warning. Because I don't know about you, but when I hear and I read this text, it's almost like through the living and active nature of God's word, I can hear God saying in it, these will be the ways of King Netflix and entertainment who will reign over you and will take your peace and joy from the life you're distracting yourself from. Or these will be the ways of king career and status who will reign over you and will take all of your time as your relationships slowly dissipate and you are left lonely and isolated. Or these will be the the ways of king sex who will reign over you and will take your hardwired desire and ability to connect and leave you with the cheapest of substitutes. Or these will be the ways of king money who will reign over you and will take your faith and trust and make you feel like you're the one in control until you realize that you're not, and that will not be fun. Or these will be the ways of king relationship or social media who will reign over you and will take your self-worth and squish it and smush it and squeeze it until there's nothing left but what other people think. These will be the ways of king politics who will take, the ways of king relationship who will take, the ways of king working out and body image who will take, the ways of king performance who will take, the ways of or the the ways of the kings of this world will take and they will take and then they will take some more until there's nothing left. God warned the Israelites. And what does God do? Let's keep reading. In verse 19, it says this, But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. (laughs) Crazy. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. Then Samuel said to the Israelites, Everyone go back to your own town. (laughs) I say it that way because poor Samuel. He's so dejected. This is not what Samuel wants. God's like, give them a king. And Samuel's like, fine, I will do that. But first, everyone just go home. I'm too tired. I'm too sad. (laughs) Like, why would God do this? Why would God do this? This isn't what Samuel wants. God gives them this warning. They say, we still want a king. God's like, okay, give them a king. You could certainly read this as God just sort of like tired and frustrated, a a sort of like fine, have it your way attitude. You you could read this as God is like cruel teacher. Like you want a king? Okay, here you go. Here's a king. Let's see what happens. But in both of those instances, God has this kind of like, okay, I'm leaning out. I'm taking my hands off. You go for it. Which butts up against what we will read in the pages and the stories that will follow. Butts up against what the Israelites experienced. Because, make no mistake, God wants the Israelite people to flourish. And what we will see in the pages and stories that follow is all of the ways that a king, an earthly king, can fall short. All of the ways that an earthly king will do exactly what Samuel warned that a king will do, take. But we will also see all of the ways a king can be a recipient and a conduit of divine blessing. God knows that an earthly king will prevent the Israelites from flourishing at times. 
But it seems that this loving and responsive God says to the Israelites, you want a king? Okay, I will work with that. I'll give you a king. And what we will see soon through the life of David is God gives a king in David who, as Paul says in Acts 13, will do his will and obey him. This is what all this trickles down to. It's why we're in this text this morning. It's the lens that we need to see David through for the next 10 weeks. If you, if you leaned out, if you were thinking about the Lions game or the, your driveway you're going to have to shovel again today, like lean in this morning right here. David represents God's refusal to give up on his people even when he's been rejected. What we will see soon in David is, is God uses the very thing that the Israelites used to reject him in a king. God uses that king to reveal his steadfast love and faithfulness, which is just bananas. David represents God's refusal to give up on his people even when he's been rejected. David represents the way that God uses crooked sticks and works behind and ahead and through the lives of his people to make straight lines because God is not a king who takes. God is a king who gives. You know, years later, long after David, God would take on flesh in the form of Jesus of Nazareth son of David, not like literal son, in the line of David. And in the Gospel of John, one of his biographies, one of Jesus' biographies, one of his early disciples, a guy by the name of Nathaniel, sees Jesus for the first time and he calls him out, he declares Jesus the king of Israel. And the next thing, the next story that we have in that biography is Jesus at a wedding banquet gone awry, multiplying and giving away wine. Why? I mean, because Jesus liked to have a good time, probably. Weddings are a good time. Keep the party going. His mom had kind of told him he had to do it, right? But I'm not going to get it. The whole thing's packed with significance. It's very complicated. I'm not getting into that, okay? What I love about it is it's the next story after Nathaniel has declared Jesus as king. And I think it's a beautiful demonstration of the declaration that Nathaniel had made of Jesus as the king. Not just a king, the king. And not just any king, a king who doesn't take, but a king who gives. A king who would show over and over and over again, even to the point of his life, that King Jesus is not a king who takes. King Jesus is a king who gives. Here's the reality. In the victories of our life, we all look down to praise and remember who helped get us there. Sometimes we end up just looking in a mirror because we think we're the ones who helped get us there, right? In the valleys of our life, we look up to the person who we know or we think will help get us out. And it's in these moments, these victories and these valleys, that the true king of our lives is revealed. The important thing isn't about whether you find yourself in a victory or a valley. Honestly, if you live long enough, you'll find out. You'll find yourself in both. The important thing is where you are looking. And this is what makes David so worth paying attention to. Because David knew he wasn't the hero of the story, that God was. David knew he was a king, not the king. 
And so in the victories of his life, in majority of his victories, he would look down and praise and remember the God who had gotten him there. And in his valleys of his life, he would look up to the one God, to the true king, the God of salvation, to the only person he knew who could help get him out. David was a king who knew he wasn't the king. That's what makes his life so worth paying attention to. So whether you find yourself in a victory or a valley, or somewhere in between, where are you looking? Seems like an appropriate question to ask, right? I think that over the next 10 weeks, as we're engaging with this incredible life that is David's life, over and over again, we will be confronted with the question, who is your king? Is it a king who takes? Or the king who gives. David was a a no-name runt. A shepherd boy. But he was a mighty warrior. He's he's an an exalted servant, an anointed king, a conspirator of murder, an, an adulterous lover. What makes the life of David so important and worth paying attention to isn't his victories or his valleys. It's the way that he chose in those victories to look down and to praise the God who he knew had gotten him there. And in the valleys, he would look up to the God, the rock, the God of salvation, who he knew was the only one who could help him out. David was a king who knew he wasn't the king. If we're going to get the most out of the Jesus story, friends, we have to soak our imagination in the David story. And that's exactly what we're going to get to do over these next 10 weeks. But this morning, we had to put on that lens to see God behind it all, refusing to give up on David and his people. And I think the only appropriate response from that this morning is to respond in worship. To respond in worship to the King, King Jesus, who does not take, but who gives. Who's never failing, never giving up, never stopping love, is always pursuing us. Whether we find ourselves in the victories of life, in the valleys of life, or somewhere in between. Amen? Let's pray. Father, Son, and Spirit, I'm just um, in awe of the opportunity that we have to gather to worship you and to allow your word, your living and active word, to speak to us in, in our lives today. God, my hope and my prayer is that over these next 10, 11 weeks, that through David through your word, that we would see and hear and experience. You're you're never failing. You're never giving up. Always pursuing love. King Jesus, a king who doesn't take, but a king who gives. We respond in worship to you this morning, King Jesus. It's in your name that we gather. It's in your name that we pray. To you be the hope and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.